Just as man cannot live without dreams, he cannot live without hope. If dreams reflect the past, hope summons the future. If we lose hope, beloved, we might survive for a while, but we will not thrive. We cannot live without hope. This is one of the most precious commodities known to mankind. We often think of Christmas as characterized by love and joy, and it is, absolutely. But the original Christmas, the first Christmas, was first about hope. What is your hope in? Where do we place our hope today? This evening we're going to be looking at a text of Scripture that we often gloss over. For your enjoyment, it's a genealogy. Now we don't always appreciate genealogies, but the genealogy we're going to be looking at this evening is found in Matthew chapter 1. If you are here this evening and you happen to not bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible, we would love to gift you one. We have some on the table over there. Pastor Aaron, if you put your hand up, sorry to single you out, but we're going to be looking at Scripture today. If you would like a Bible, Pastor Aaron would be happy to run one over to you. Just put your hand up. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to have it and take it home if you need one. But we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This book, not just Matthew, but the Bible, is the most important book written in the history of mankind. It has given hope to countless human beings for over 2,000 years. It has changed lives. I urge you to check it out if you're not familiar. Matthew's gospel is the first of the four biblical gospels, four accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that word itself, gospel, just means good news. It's an old English word. Because this life lived 2,000 years ago has changed the course of history. It has affected more lives than any other single life in history. His life was good news back then. His life is still good news today, 2,000 years later. This is why we are gathered here today to remember and celebrate and give thanks for his birth. He is the focus of the entire Bible. He is the focus of the Christian faith. Now, the people who originally received this news, ironically, were struggling to find hope. They were pretty hopeless. Harsh oppression by the Roman Empire had led to their rebellion, had led this people, Israel, to rebel against Rome around 70 AD. They put their hope in political freedom and dignity, one at the end of the sword, but that for them proved to be a false hope. Where we put our hope matters, beloved. Where we put our hope matters. Well, Rome's response to the rebellion was brutal. They cracked down with terrible violence. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple, which had been the focus of this people's worship, 
for all of their history was destroyed never to be rebuilt again. And Jewish worship was never the same. As far as they were aware, God had abandoned them. But Matthew knows something that they don't. There is hope. Through this account, through this gospel, Matthew seeks to show that God's plan for hope, the source of God's hope for us, for humanity, was not found in political freedom. It was found in the person of Jesus. Centered on Jesus, God began building a kingdom that was upside down or maybe right side up, depending on the perspective you take. But a kingdom that was for all mankind, a kingdom that would reach to the ends of the earth, a kingdom that would bring hope to the hopeless. These first 17 verses are packed with hope, packed with reminders to trust God's plan, packed with reminders of what God's plan and promises pointed to, packed with hope for those of us who can see it. My hope for this evening, see what I did there? My hope for this evening is to draw out, to point us to some of the hope that Matthew points his readers to, we being his readers today. The hope of Christmas, the hope of Christ. Let's look at Matthew 1, and we'll start reading at verse 1. I'll start reading at verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a huge amount. Let's pause there for a second. There's a huge amount to pack just in those few words. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm going to start with Abraham, but for context, I'm going to go back right all the way to the beginning. I'm going to go back to where Scripture points us to everything having, having begun. By faith, beloved, we believe that this world exists and everything that we see exists not by chance, but because of a good God, an all-powerful God, a Creator who created everything that we see. By faith, we believe that this didn't come about by chance, but that God had a purpose in what he created, and God had a purpose in creating us, in creating you, in creating me. He set mankind as his stewards to care for his earth, for his creation, and to reflect the love and the blessing and the glory that he desired to shine through creation. We were made in his image to reflect him to one another and to the world around us. We were created with a purpose. You have a purpose. But beyond purpose, our good God set loving boundaries to protect us. How we live matters to God. Sadly, what we read in Scripture is that the first man and the first woman chose to break those boundaries. In, instead of trusting God's good design for mankind, they chose to go their own way. They rebelled against his leadership. They re rebelled against his care. 
They disobeyed him. What the Bible refers to as sin. Sin broke a relationship with God. It started a catastrophic downward spiral through the history of mankind. Have you ever noticed how we're constantly searching for satisfaction? Like there's something missing and we are longing for it. We long for it. We often, we put our hope on finding it in what's next. Maybe it's the next relationship. Maybe it's the next promotion or the next job. Maybe it's the next fix or the next experience or the next something. But that, that will satisfy us. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's just me. But I've seen this in, uh, beyond just my heart. Human beings are looking for something that is missing. And it seems elusive. The harder we search for it, we, we don't seem to find it. We get to those experiences. We get to those relationships. We get uh, to those jobs, those advancement opportunities. But they don't fulfill us. And yet we keep searching. And it becomes this urgent search in our hearts, this desire that won't be filled and sometimes people get in the way of the desire, and so we hurt people, we lie, we steal, we get angry, we try to remove any barriers that would get in the way of our search for that which will satisfy. Ever been there? This is a consequence of our rebellion against God. The rebellion of the first man and the first woman that has been multiplied countless times over to you and me today led to lives of selfishness, lives of violence and deceit and alienation. And eventually it led to concentration camps and to killing fields, to war and genocide. When we turn away from God, when we turn away from God's plan for us and his boundaries for us, something breaks in the human heart. Something is, is removed that is indispensable. It affects all of our lives. So what does Abraham have to do with this? See, God, our creator who loves us, he wasn't content to leave the world and mankind broken. From the beginning of our rebellion, he set in motion a plan of redemption, a plan to reconcile people for himself. And that plan started with calling a special people for himself, a people who would know him and who would know his ways, a people who would be called by his name. And the calling of that people started with a calling of Abraham. God calls Abraham, this man who has no children, and God promises him that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the heaven. God promises Abraham that through his offspring, through his seed, he would bless, he, God, would bless every family on earth. God promised to bring his redemption to this world through Abraham. Now, mind you, Abraham has no children, but he still believes God. He accepts God's promise in faith and clings to the God who promised it. He sets his hope not on satisfaction in this world, 
but he sets his hope on the promises of God. And God proves true to his word as we are about to read in this genealogy of Abraham's descendants. Through Abraham's descendants, men and women who, like Abraham, set their hope in God, who received God's promises by faith and clung to them, God begins working this plan to redeem, to fix, to heal this broken world. And what Matthew is arguing in beginning this genealogy by referencing Abraham is that Jesus, the, the subject of the book that he's about to write, Jesus is that seed. Jesus is that descendant in whom every family on earth will be blessed. Let's continue reading. Would you look with me at verse 2? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Bear with me, beloved. We are going through hundreds of years of history in a couple of lines here. Genealogies are not so exciting for us, are they? They're just names that blur together. But to the people who are first reading this, to the people for whom Matthew is writing and pointing to hope, this is their history. These genealogies are filled with generation after generation of men and women who set their hope in God and to whom God proved faithful. If you haven't read these stories, all these stories are available in the first part of the Bible. I urge you to check them out. They are beautiful and they are filled with examples of God's faithfulness. The upshot, though, is that God not only gives Abraham a child, Isaac, but God multiplies his descendants. By the end of the paragraph, Abraham's descendants have grown into a powerful nation ruled by one of the greatest kings ever, King David. Now David loved God with all his heart. His hope was in God alone. And God is so pleased with David's humility and faith that to this descendant of Abraham specifically, he makes a promise as well, just like he had made to his ancestor, to Abraham. God promises David to establish one of David's descendants as king over a kingdom that would have no end, a kingdom that would last forever, where he would rule with justice and righteousness and equity, God's blessing to every family of the earth, God's redemption of the world would include the raising up of a king who would rule in justice. What Matthew is saying here, what Matthew is pointing to by referencing both Abraham and David is that this was the king to come. See, the Jewish people had been waiting under 
Babylonian oppression, under Persian oppression, under Greek oppression, under Roman oppression. They had been waiting for this king who would come to save them, who would set them free, who would establish their sovereignty as a nation, and who would rule in righteousness. They had been waiting and waiting through every generation they had been waiting. And here Matthew is pointing to the fact that he has come, but the kingdom he established was different than what they had expected. We'll look at this in more detail very soon. But there's something else here that's fascinating that we see in these first few verses. Would you look with me at verse 5 again? Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. There's two women mentioned. Well, there's several women mentioned in this genealogy. But these two stand out. I mean, they all stand out. I'm going to touch on these two. You see, Rahab. Rahab was a woman. Rahab was a prostitute. And Rahab was a foreigner. This is as low as it got at her her time. But Rahab was wise. She heard of the reputation of God. She heard of his goodness and of his power. And she clung to him. She hitched herself to his people. She believed what she heard and followed in faith. And God adopted her into his family and folded her into his plan. We see the same thing for Ruth. She was a widow and a foreigner with no plans and no prospects, with no hope. She didn't belong But she attached herself selflessly to God's people and was adopted and folded into God's promise of blessing. Beloved, do you ever feel like you don't fit in? We are in good company. What Scripture teaches is that sin, rebellion, and selfishness spread from the first sinners from the first people all the way to us we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God none of us belongs none of us fits in with him we are all unworthy and undeserving but what scripture also shows us is that the God of the Bible loves the unworthy and the undeserving he is a God of mercy and grace whose arms are open wide to any sinner who turns away from their sin and who turns to him for grace. What was true for Abraham and what was true for Rahab and what was true for Ruth is true for me and is true for you. God blesses those who hear his promises, who believe and who follow him. The next line, would you look with me at verse 6? The next line is beautiful. It's heartbreaking and yet it's filled with hope. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David, who loved God with all his heart, messed up hugely. David betrayed his friend and took his wife, killed his friend, Do you ever feel like your mess-up is too great? Do you ever feel, feel like your sin was too terrible? 
The God of the Bible, beloved, forgives all who acknowledge their sin, who confess and turn away from it. He longs to renew. He longs to forgive. He longs to redeem messed up sinners like me. David didn't try to hide his sin. David confessed and asked God for mercy, and he received it. And so today, anyone who confesses and turns away from their sin and asks God for mercy receives it. So from this genealogy so far, we're reminded that God has a plan to redeem mankind, that he blesses those who receive his promises with faith, that he blesses those who follow him, and that he forgives all who confess and turn from their sin. Let's read on the second part of verse 6. Or sorry, let's start again at that paragraph from verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Again, these names just blur to us, right? But each one of these was a generation. Each one of these lived and loved. Some of them dealt righteously. Some of them not so much. But this was part of the history of this people. Matthew is pointing the people to God's plan, to God's faithfulness, to God's presence with them through history. But Matthew is also pointing them to the seriousness of sin in God's eyes. See, under David, the kingdom grew mighty and powerful, but with power came folly. All the names we just read were kings of Israel, but most of them, sadly, were wicked kings. They had no faith. They had no fear of God. Their lives weren't tempered by the assurance, by the knowledge by the belief that they would one day stand before the throne of God and give account for their lives as we all must do. They set their hope on earthly wealth and security and prosperity, and most of them were marked by selfishness and corruption. But beloved God, the Creator, is holy. We see this everywhere in Scripture. He is holy. He loves what is good and just and right. He hates wickedness and injustice. And like all good and uncorrupted, uncorrupt judges, he must punish the wicked. To do otherwise would be unjust. This last line here in that paragraph, the deportation to Babylon was God's discipline on his people. Israel's corruption resulted in conquest and exile to Babylon where God's people lived as refugees, never belonging, always longing to return home. What Scripture teaches clearly is that because God is holy, sin must be dealt with. All sin, from murder to white lies, ultimately represents rebellion against God. Sin 
always has consequences. And so Israel went into exile, but God wasn't done with them. This everlasting kingdom that he had promised hadn't yet been established. All the earth's families hadn't yet been dealt, hadn't yet been blessed. Even when the consequences of sin fall on us, God isn't done with us. He always keeps his promises. Let's read on in verses 12 to 17. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Again, Matthew's readers would be intimately familiar with this story. In these generations, God brings Israel back from exile, but things aren't easy. Babylon began as a superpower, but they were replaced by Persia, and Persia rules Israel. And then Persia is replaced by Greece, and Greece rules Israel. Israel fights back. They gain independence for a little bit, but then Rome comes along and conquers everything. And when Matthew is writing, and for generations, several generations already, Israel has been living under harsh Roman oppression. But Matthew isn't concerned with the history. Matthew's concerned with the Christ. Christ, beloved, wasn't his last name. It's his title. It means the chosen one, the anointed one, the promised king. Jesus, Matthew argues, is the king that all these generations had been waiting him, waiting for. Jesus is the king through which God would restore and redeem his people and the world. Through the rest of this gospel, Matthew shows us that Jesus was no mere man, but God himself born as a human to redeem mankind. Let's just stop there for a second. We are here this evening, we are all here this evening to celebrate the incarnation, one of the greatest miracles in history. It literally means coming into flesh or getting in flesh because we believe God put on flesh and came as a baby, came as a man to redeem this world. Have you ever considered how crazy that notion is? If someone came up to you today and said, I am God, you'd likely feel sorry for that person. You'd likely try to get them help. That's a preposterous claim to make. A claim that's very easy to refute. A claim that's as ridiculous as claiming to be a cabbage or a duck or a storm. Like, you're a person like me. And yet this is what Jesus claimed. But his life was so filled with power and with love, it was so qualitatively different that the people closest to him 
the people he grew up with, the people he spent the most time with, all the way down to people who just met him, not only believed this claim, but they were willing to risk their lives on the veracity, on the truth of this claim. Many of them were tortured and killed as they testified that this was true, that Jesus truly was God. How crazy is that? These men and women closest to him who heard a man say, I am God, worshipped him. They were so convinced that he was right. Jesus changed their lives. And like Matthew and like me and like all of us who are members of this church, they were convinced that this was the hope for the world, the only hope for this world. Beloved, here is hope. We are messes. We are sinners. We are selfish. We are angry. We are violent. We are unjust. We deserve to be held to account. We deserve to be brought to justice. And God is a just judge. But this is how beloved you are. God took on flesh And after living a life that made it evident that he truly was God as he claimed, he laid that life down on the cross, suffering, offering to take the punishment that we deserve. And what he asks of us is to turn from our sins and to believe his claims, and we will be forgiven from everything that we should be held to account for. But this isn't just about forgiveness Jesus also promises renewal. He promises to transform our hearts, to change us from the inside out into people who desire to do what is is right and who are empowered by God's Spirit to live lives of holiness. He promises the peace, the joy, the satisfaction that we long for, that we put our hope on, but seems ever elusive. He promises that anyone who thirsts and comes to him and drinks will never thirst again. And he promises even more. He, as he is redeeming the world now, as he is changing our hearts now, he's coming back to finish the job. And when he returns, he sets all wrongs to right. He makes all things new. But when he returns, he also brings all sinners to account. He restores the world to what it should have been apart from sin. You and I, as every person who ever lived, who has ever lived, will stand before his throne and give account for our lives. At Christmas, we remember the incarnation. God in love, took on flesh and came to earth to redeem us. If you haven't yet wrestled with the implications of this outrageous claim, I urge you to do so today. Because this man must either be be treated as someone who claims to be a cabbage, or he must be treated as the God he claims to be. Either he is a lunatic or he is telling the truth. 
He so powerfully convinced those closest to him that they gave their lives to proclaim that he was truly God. His impact on history is unmatched. History warps around him. History is divided into the time before Christ and the time after his life. There has been no life in human history as impactful as the life that we celebrate every Christmas. And his promises never fail. He has changed my life. He has changed the life of every member of this church. Do you believe this, beloved? Before Christmas can be about joy, before Christmas can be about love, though love and joy are a natural outflow of this truth, but first, Christmas is about hope. And here is hope. Not wishful thinking, but hope based on the promises of God who never fails. Here is hope. Not a fleeting hope, but a hope that is for all eternity. At Christmas, God took on flesh to redeem this world. And all who turn from their sin and rebellion and receive His promises in faith and follow him are forgiven and are being transformed and will be saved by, from God's eternal justice by taking refuge in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Either this is true and has power, powerful bearing on your life today, on all our lives today, either this is true and must be taken into account in how we live our lives or the most impactful life in history was lived by a lunatic. Consider his claims. Here is hope that God so loved this world that he gave his only son that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And no one who sets their hope in him will ever be put to shame. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, as your people, we thank you that we are a people of hope, that you have not abandoned us, that you leave, don't leave us alone, but that you forgive, that you redeem that you save all who turn to you. As people who have come to you, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the hope that he has brought to this world for 2,000 years, for the lives that he has transformed for 2,000 years, for the kingdom that is advancing to the ends of the earth, for his promises that never fail. Lord, help us to live this life. Help us to live this year to come. Lives that are founded, that stand firmly on this hope. Our hope is in you. Amen.